Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Karma You podcast. This is your host, Chloe Brotheridge. I'm a coach, a hypnotherapist, and I'm the author of The Anxiety Solution and Brave New Girl. And this podcast is all about helping you to become your calmest, happiest, and most confident self. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I am speaking to Fiona Buckland today on the podcast. We're talking about leadership and imposter syndrome. And we talk about what it means to be leaders of our own lives. And this is really for people who perhaps you are a leader in your work, or perhaps you just want to know how to, exactly as Fiona says, be a leader of your own life. And she explains what that means and how we can get more of that in our lives. She shares her incredible advice for those with imposter syndrome. And probably that's you because depending on which survey you read, between 50 and 100% of people experience imposter syndrome. We talk about why people-pleasing is actually a stress response. And I found this completely fascinating. I think you will too. And we also discuss the cheery topic of whether we should all contemplate our own death. So <laughs> ending with that cheery topic, but I promise you, it's, it's cheerier and more uplifting than it sounds. So this week, the 22nd of March, 2021, I am inviting people in to my new business mastermind. It is for those of you who are coaches, hypnotherapists, maybe you're a meditation teacher or a healer of some kind, and you would like to expand your business online and create an online business. So maybe that's offering courses or online programs helping more people with your work. Because having an online business isn't an impossible dream, it's a smart business model. So if this sounds interesting to you, you've got just this week to look into joining and you can head over to my website karma-u.com forward slash mastermind or one word to find out all the details of that. So let's get into the interview with Fiona Buckland. Welcome, Fiona. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Thank you very much. It's a really sunny day in London. And as I was saying to you, I haven't been in London for a while. I've come up here for an appointment and uh, up from the South Coast where I evacuated myself uh, during COVID. And it's kind of like being in a different culture, but it's um, it's really nice. There's a lot of sort of um, joy here. And I'm sitting in my friend's apartment on a beautiful sunny day as well. So you know, can't really complain about that. That's lovely, lovely. Can you share a little bit about what it is that you do and and how you came to to get to where you are today? Yeah, so as always, 
I always say to clients, there are two tracks, right? There's your work life, there's a kind of work track. There's also the deeper soul track, if you like, as well. Um, So the front room story is that I'm a coach. I'm a leadership coach and facilitator. That means I work with individuals one-on-one. I work with groups. I go into corporations. I do public stuff like Guardian masterclasses and my own courses. And the way I got to doing that was it's always a windy road, right? I started off as an academic. I uh, lived in New York for five years doing a PhD. I came back here and what seemed really exciting was to work for Amazon because at the time it was 1999 and it was the Wild West. And those are the days we used to knock on the doors of books of um, publishers and say, hey, you know, we're from the internet. And they say, the internet is bad, go away. So that's how, you know, that's how much the world has changed since then. And it was really exciting. Then I went to work for a major publisher. Then I went to work for the launch. I was the MD for a small startup publishing company. And then I hit this kind of moment when I said, okay, you know what? I know I don't want any more jobs in bookselling and publishing. I've done, done everything I want. What do I really want in my life? I went to see a life coach. And he helped me get really aligned with my values and saw that it wasn't about the job description. What I was really passionate about was ideas and connection and supporting people. So I went from there to become head of learning at the School of Life, which is a sort of global organization that's very involved in, if you like, helping people develop emotional skills. So I was working with them for for a while, writing classes, and then that changed as well. And I said, well, I can facilitate the classes at the School of Life, but I also want to train a little bit to be a coach and see how it goes. You know, just see how it goes, right? So I did. And it's been incredibly successful. Um, What I mean by success is not that just that I'm earning a living, but also I feel really aligned. I feel really aligned with what I'm doing, like with who I am is is what's showing up in the world and how I'm being Mm -hmm. of service in the world. So that's what I do. And then the soul track. Ten years ago, I hit a wall. I would wake up in the morning and would have terrible panic attacks. And on the outside, everything looked like it was going really well. Um, I had a successful job. I had a lovely apartment. I had great friends. But something wasn't right. And I realized gradually that I was, I was on my knees. I'd run out of road. And I was pulling all the old levers and doing all the old dances that used to help me, but it really wasn't helping anymore. And so I needed to find another way. So on my knees, I guess, I went to therapy. And that really helped me to realize that there was a lot more going on than what was on the surface. What was actually going on was that I had been, you know, imagine that your your life is a big mansion, but you live in the kitchen. Right. And occasionally you hear clanking in the pipes in other parts of the house, but you don't really answer that. So this process of going into therapy to learning more about myself, to learning how much more there was, meant that I had to kind of come out of the kitchen, answer the door, open up some of the doors, go into some of the rooms and see what was going on in there. And of course, in all of them, there was me going, please let me speak you know, please listen to me, please pay attention. And the story of that was really that when I was two, my mother had passed away. 
And I had kind of, as a two-year-old does, I'd put all that grief and confusion and separation and abandonment in a little box somewhere and kept it there. And because I'd been adopted, it, it had sort of been sealed over a little bit. You know, it's all right, you're adopted. But because I hadn't really dealt with it, and as a two-year-old, you just can't. When I was getting up to the age that my mother was when she died, I started hitting that wall. Mm. Something deeper was calling me saying, there's more to you than that's going on here. There's more than just the surface story. Get underneath, meet me, meet yourself again so you can take, take care of yourself. So that's the soul track as well as if you like kind of CV track. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I know that I followed you for for a while. I can't remember how I first heard of you, whether it was through a mutual friend or maybe I saw you pop up on The Guardian, you know, doing a workshop or something. But I have followed you for a little while now and I'm, I can't wait to hear more about what you have to share today. I've been reading your book. You've got a new book out, Thoughtful Leadership. It's full of, please show us, yes, gorgeous. But- I don't know if it's back to front or anyway, but you only got the PDF. So yeah, once you're nice to country, see it in the, in the flesh. It's yeah. lovely colour. It's yeah. lovely kind of green, it's green and blues. It's gorgeous. Yeah. You did a nice job. Yeah. Um, and there's so many nuggets in there. There's so many, you know, really interesting things that got me thinking and so helpful, so much to think about. C- can you share a bit about what the book is about? Good. Well, well, first of all, thanks very much for what you said. And I'm really pleased that you found it helpful because that's what the book is about. I guess not everyone can afford a coach, right? And this was really part of the service aspect, you know, because this is full of ideas, insights, and practices, exactly the kind of things that I do with my clients. And that's why I think it's really helpful. Now, it's not the same as seeing a coach, but there's so much in here that's really useful. The reason that I did it as well wasn't just as as part of a service thing, But I fundamentally believe that we need good leaders. The issues that we face are too complex. The consequences are too great, not just for us, but for future generations. And the way I always ask people to think about it is to think about seven generations of going forward of all living beings. But fundamental to that is that a lot of people don't feel that they're ready for leadership. They think it's somebody else who gets to be the leader. And there's a very narrow kind of um, visual representation of what leadership looks like. So quite a lot of people feel excluded. I think that is changing, but it's taking, you know, it needs all of us to stand up, basically, really good people there. But a lot of people don't think they've got what it takes. A lot of people don't realize, and this is established leaders, as well as aspiring leaders, that it takes a great deal of inner work as well. Leadership isn't just about having a big budget or a job title. It isn't necessarily about running a campaign and doing a big Instagram account. It's not even about, you know, having a big contact base and being able to pick up the phone and talk to Bill Gates or whoever you want to talk to to affect change. What it is is a commitment to lifelong development, to being open, to wanting to learn, and also to be able to lead yourself And I think that this is a really important idea that I talk about in the first part of the book. So I would say to people, even if you're not sure if you want to be a leader, there's a huge amount of stuff on here on self-leadership about finding your, your authentic self, who you are, what you stand for, being able to manage yourself a little bit, which I think we'll talk about a bit later as well. Mm. And also being able to know what your purpose is 
and how to show up, how to tune into other people, how to tune into yourself to know what's needed in the moment, and also to take responsibility. All of us now are at a point where we need to take responsibility for our world, which is fundamentally what leadership is about, right? So if we can all do a bit more of that, then we can affect the change that we need to um, on every level. There isn't an aspect of our, our existence that doesn't require all of our attention at the moment and all of our ability to lead. What does it mean when, when you say being leaders of our own lives? Can you, can you share what, you, what, what does that mean for somebody? Yeah, there are two things. I always say two, and then if I find another one, <laughs> forgive me. One is this. We're very often running off old scripts. The scripts of what, as a coach, I always pick up on what we should be doing. We should be earning this money. We should be living in a house that looks like this. We should have this in our title. We should be feeling happier, right? When I have all this, why aren't I happy? And it's these shoulds, these internal and internalized aspects of culture and society and the messages that we have that can give us a false sense of what would make us happy, what would make us feel fulfilled. So part of self-leadership is being able to get really clear on your own values. I call it my your personal GPS, right? We might not know where the destination is, but when you've got your own GPS, when you know what your values are, you can you can sort of hold them as a compass. So wherever you are, you can feel, do I feel aligned with this? Is this in alignment with my values or am I starting to kind of get pushed around by it or, or pushing myself around? So it's, it's really, really crucial for people to have an idea of who they are, who they are authentically, what will make them feel more fulfilled, um, and then to be able to follow that. You know, as an example, my top three values are growth, service, and love. And growth also includes courage and creativity. Love is kindness and compassion as well as intimacy and, and really wanting to support people in service. How can I be of use? So whatever I do in my life, as long as I check in with that and say, right, am I still you know, doing this podcast? Is this in alignment with growth, service, and love? Yes, absolutely. If it isn't, don't do it. You know, it, it might be, you might be tempting me with all the money and the, the dream job and the dream opportunity. But if it's not, like if someone said to me, look, you can have whatever you want, but I don't want you to be compassionate. You have to drive people really hard. And I don't want you to talk to them. I don't want, you know, you're above them. You're separate from them. That's how we run our organization. I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. So that's one way that we think about self-leadership. The other way is to understand how we can lead ourselves in every moment. So here's the truth. We are animals with iPhones and we forget this, right? No, we forget that we can get very stressed by triggers around us all the time. And where it used to be a predator coming after us on the scanners, now it's a, an email from your boss or from your partner. You know, you, it kind of pings up at you all the time or the overwhelm of seeing your inbox, the frustration of reading a news report and hearing that we're going to be in lockdown for more or whatever it might be. Um, we get triggered and we need to notice that we've been triggered and then to find a way to self-soothe ourselves. You know, there's um, two systems at play in, in our autonomic nervous response. The sympathetic nervous system, which I always think is like the fire alarm. And it's great. That gets us out of bed. It gets us motivated. We need, do need a bit of stress. 
But there's also the parasympathetic, which is the sprinkler. And we need to be able to judge when we're in a triggered state. And I want to say as well, that can also be pleasure triggered as well. You know, when someone offers you a load of money, that's a triggered state as well. There's both yuck and yum, as I say, in triggering. But we need to notice that. And then we need to take some steps to lessen the influence of that triggered state on us so that we don't run our lives and our interactions with other people off it. You know, a good example and something we might talk about later and I do a lot of work on is the inner critic, of course. That's a triggered state. You've got triggered. So you can work by noticing it and talking yourself through that situation. There are techniques to do that. And if you do what we call the somatic work, really noticing how your body feels like, oh, I feel really tense and triggered and using that as a resource as well to ease yourself down a little bit, you know, bringing your whole self in because we've got, we're so much more than we give ourselves credit for. I always call it when I coach the TARDIS moment because it's the moment when people realize they are so much bigger than they realized. And this managing the stress this way, it's learning how to lead yourself, using your whole self is just an extraordinary journey and really wonderful for a lot of people. I love that, that reminding ourselves that we're bigger than we, than we realize. Do you think that we often don't realize that we've been triggered and that these things is kind of, it's like our everyday state, you know, for many of us, we're constantly in fight or flight or the inner critic is always in the background or we're kind of like, firefighting with like things coming at us and like I don't know we feel like we are we just constantly like that and how you know how how can we start to get out of that yeah my answer is pretty much so Mm. pretty much so even if there isn't a catastrophe in the middle of your day you've got your environment is triggering you all the time anyway you know we can be contacted at any time not just in email, not just in text, but in, I don't know how many messaging services I've got now. And there's Twitter and there's, there's almost no way to get away from it unless you kind of bury your phone somewhere and, and walk away, which of course a lot of people find really, really difficult. This is a test that I say to people all the time. At the end of the day, check in with yourself. And there's a little way that we can check in and notice how much you're holding. So if you want, we could do that now. How do you feel about that? Yes, please. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe people, of course, you're in Indonesia, nothing is going wrong there. But anyway, um, this is a technique called centering. And I teach this as a kind of one-on-one, 101 technique to people. It's super simple. What I love about it is that you don't need a special place. You can do it in the middle of a meeting. You can do it on a call. You can do it when you're about to have a difficult conversation with your partner or your kids. You can do it when you're actually talking to somebody and it just starts to release a little bit of the tension. You don't just have to do this when it's you're stressed. You can do it at any time. I do it as a practice when I'm waiting for the kettle to boil, which happens a lot because I drink a lot of tea. So here's what we're going to do. So first of all, just get a sense of yourself sitting, standing, wherever you are right now. And my first invitation is for you just to loosen your belly a little bit. If it helps, tense it up and then release it. But we're not looking for, you know, floppiness. Perhaps the invitation is just for 10% less tension in your belly. And you might notice when you do that, a little bit of release around your lower back, upper thighs, in your pelvis. 
And then bring your attention up to your jaw, keeping that soft belly. And if it helps, just your, your hand softly on your belly to remind you. Bring your attention up to your jaw. And again, the invitation is what would 10% more relaxation in your jaw be like? Maybe you notice when you do that that you've been carrying quite a lot of tension in your jaw. Maybe you notice it around the back of your neck or your throat. So now with this soft belly, soft jaw, I'm going to invite you to imagine that you're inflating a bag around you or inflating a, a ball of light around you, almost like you're a light bulb shining. You might want to do it on an out breath. And feel into this space that you're expanding around you. So that it's not just in front of you, it's down, it's up, it's left, it's right, it's back, it's front in 360 degrees. Really great if you push into the space behind you as well, just expanding your awareness. Just do that for one more breath. Loosen belly, loosen jaw. And visualize that you're expanding that space around you as if you're glowing like a light bulb. How's that feel, Chloe? I almost forgot I was recording a podcast. I almost went into a bit of a trance there. <laughs> that was lovely. That was lovely. Yeah. As simple as that. And I, mm. I did it quite slow. But if you just remember it as a one, two, three, belly, jaw, expand. What you're doing is you're working through the body. Because when you're stressed, even at a little level, micro level, right, you get, you know, the dog barks or something like that, or someone goes past you in the street really fast. That kind of gets retained in your body. And you, you, we walk around and we don't release it. But if you do centering practices like that, you'll just take yourself down a little bit, release those micro tensions. And it's also good to do when you notice that you are feeling a bit stressed because there is something coming up that you've got to do as well. It's a nice little technique just to give yourself a little bit more space. Love it. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think I didn't realise that I was, you know, tensing my stomach and my jaw was a bit tense. And you don't realise that until you have that reminder or remind yourself to consciously, you know, soften and relax. And how, you know, we're, we're doing that all day, aren't we? Yeah, it, it happens automatically. And again, there's nothing wrong with, with tension, right? Because we need tension to get going. Let's not make stress wrong. But when it becomes our default, we're not supposed to be like that. When you watch, a, you know, if you ever watch a, an animal in the wild being pursued, uh, if it escapes its attacker, it will give itself a good shake. It will, you know, recenter itself. It will get the stress hormones out of its system. But we're not doing that, you know. But the useful thing about that technique is that because the body and mind are connected, if you can release the places where tension typically gets stored, then it actually gives you a bit more space in your mind. And when you do this quite often, you'll notice, you know, like poker players have their tells, you'll notice yourself where you typically start to hold. So for me, I hold a lot of tension in my pelvis. So before I go to sleep at night, I just go, yeah, I'm relaxed. And then I relax my pelvis a little bit. And it's amazing how much has still got stuck in there. So if there's one thing that people take away from this, then, then do practice. It's really simple and, and quite life-changing. Beautiful. 
I wanted to ask you something that you describe in the book about stress patterns. And probably most people have heard of fight or flight, but there's two that you mentioned that I think a lot of people haven't heard of, and it's friend or fawn. Can you can you explain that? Yeah, it's interesting that fight or flight are the ones that we kind of notice most, right? There's also fold which is that sense of inner collapse and victimhood, like, oh, that always happens to me. And here we go again. You know, you might recognize the scripts and embodiment terms. You kind of, you would uh, sag a bit, you know, that weary resignation. Friend or fawn is an interesting one. So let's go through them again. Fight, in case people don't know. Um, yeah. Fight is you're triggered and you can become quite confrontational. You want to, oh, you want to smash something, Right or yell at somebody. That's fight. Flight is when you want to get out of there. You want to avoid it. You want to uh, avoid the confrontation. It doesn't just mean that you go. It can also mean that you crack a joke. That's a way of getting away from a tense situation, let's say. Or you look at your phone, or you change the subject. These are also ways of fleeing. So fight, flight, freeze, which is the rabbit in the headlights. I can get this a lot, freeze, the kind of you know, it's almost as if you're hitting the gas and the brake at the same time. Fold, which as I mentioned, is that kind of collapse. And then friend or fawn. So let's imagine a difficult situation, right? Let's imagine that, you know, someone's, you're driving along and someone's pranged your car, right? Um, Nobody's fault, really. Perhaps they pulled out a bit fast. You get out of the car, And instantly you start going, oh, 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 no no, no problem, no problem. My fault as much as yours, no problem, you know. And what's happening is not actually a a calm-centered response. There's a kind of urgency and fear of confrontation, which creates a lot of stress. So rather than the friend aspect being one that's coming from a healthy, let's connect emotionally together fine, It's actually one to try and avoid conflict. And as you notice, you might even surrender and not take a stand for something that has happened as well, because you're just trying to avoid it. So notice yourself as well. Wouldn't it be easier to get out of the car car and say, okay, all right, hi, hi, what do we need to do here? Let's do this. You can do it in a friendly manner without going into a kind of panic response. But if you don't deal with this well, there might be some confrontation and that becomes alarming. So you'll notice it in yourself. Even when I did that pantomime of it, that kind of like, oh, oh don't want to get into trouble. I could notice what happened in my I got really tense. Mm. My body got really tense. My shoulders came up virtually to my ears. And I actually, even just pretending to be in it or connecting with it, I, my chest started to kind of whir with adrenaline. And that's something real else really important to say about stress, which is not just what happens to you. It's what you can imagine as well. We're brilliant at doing that, uh, getting stressed out at our thoughts as well as what actually happens to us in the world as well. So that's that's friend or fawn. It's almost like the people pleasers response to be like, how can I make it okay? How can I bend myself out of shape to like make this person okay? Because I don't want to create an upset or yeah, I don't feel like I can cope with the confrontation, as you say. Um, I love that you made that connection. I think it's really mm, helpful. Mm, yeah, it's good for the people pleasers amongst us to be aware of that that can that can get triggered. <laughs> I had lots of that one. Raise your hands. hands. <laughs> yeah. um, All the pleasers will raise their hand just to 
thesis. You know that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. I guess. I guess leading on from this, so the the kind of something that I often see as connected, kind of people pleasing. You talked about the inner critic, imposter syndrome. I think is another big topic which I hear a lot and which, depending on which uh, survey you read, affects 60 to like 100% of women, I think, and also a lot of men as well. Can you share your kind of take on imposter syndrome? Yeah, um, I I do a lot of work on this. And I want to emphasise as well that a lot of the people that I work with are people that you would never expect to have it. They're people that you might hear on a radio program, people who've authored a book, people working in Hollywood, people who are the heads of major organizations. So I really want to say that it is something that is normal. There's also one more thing I need to say as well, I think, that it's not just, we very often think of inner critic or imposter syndrome as something is wrong with us and we need to fix it. But I also do think that there are social and cultural contexts that also contribute to it as well. I've worked with quite a few women. I've worked with people of colour who said that they feel a bit of imposter syndrome when they're the only woman or the only person of colour in the room. And everybody else seems to be speaking off certain assumptions that they don't share. So that can be really powerful as well. So yes, it is what it is. It was picked up, I think, or described in, I think, 1978 by a couple of psychologists Clance and Imes. And they, you know what psychologists put it really brilliantly and kind of cleanly, if a bit clinically, they said it's the the inability to internalize competence. I said the inability to internalize competence. So you are competent, you just don't believe it, in other words. And it shows up in all kinds of ways. People pleasing is a good example, though it isn't always connected with imposter syndrome. But what really helps is knowing that it's a thing. I teach workshops on it. And the first thing I do is to get people to look around and go, you see, like, it's not just you. There are a lot of people. Yes, it's something like 70% of successful people have it. The first cohort that they worked on was all women. So it looked like it was all women because it was only women in the cohort. Subsequently, they've done a lot more work on it with men and realized that men actually experiencing it as much as women, but they don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. The question of how vulnerable they feel when they talk about it is is another thing that needs to be dealt with. Imposter syndrome as well, and I think it's so important to say, doesn't just show up in your work. It can show up in your life. It can show up in your love life. You know, who would want to go out with me? Who would want to date me? How could this person love me? You know, it has a really powerful hold. You can also never experiencing it never experience it. And then something happens and kaboom, it arrives, you know, so it's not a thing that people have like a blood group. No, it's something that can suddenly appear, especially when we feel vulnerable. The way that it shows up is that inner critic voice, that saboteur voice that says, you know, you don't know what you're doing. Everyone's going to find out and you'll be exposed as a fraud which is terrifying. And again, it's so important for what I said about leadership because we need people to step up. We need people to step up and over their imposter syndrome in order to actually help everybody, help us all, help the world in its time of need as well. And we need good leaders, right? And 
I think very often people with imposter syndrome in some ways can become better leaders than people without it, you know, because there's a kind of, um, and I want to draw a really important distinction between imposter syndrome and humility, right? The mo- one of the most important things all leaders need is humility. Imposter syndrome is not that. Imposter syndrome is a fear-based thing, if you like. It's perspective rather than reality, although it feels like reality. But to be humble, to be able to say, you know what, I might not know everything. There might well be people in this room that might know more than me. So let's give them the space to shine. That's a form of of, uh, humility and confidence as well. So how do I work with it with people? It's the same for the inner critic. The first thing to do is to notice to notice it. Like the same as we did with the stress, right, is to notice it. You might want to notice what your tells are, and very often it will be a script. If I do this, everyone will think I'm a fraud. If I do, who am I to do this? I'm not qualified. I'm, I'm just so small and the world is so big. Notice that, first of all. Understand that it's a thing. It's not you. It's not reality. It's just the thoughts. And there will be reasons that there was were there in some ways to keep you safe as well when you were growing up, because having your parents' approval was so vital to your survival, you know, parents, caregivers. And so you were monitoring all the time. So the first thing is to notice. The second thing is to accept and self-compassion, which I know you've talked about before on, on a podcast, which I know people cannot talk about this enough. And I'm so pleased that you did having some self-compassion. And there are two ways you can do this. So two exercises that I suggest to people. One is to imagine somebody who loves you unconditionally, loves you unconditionally, knows everything about you, accepts everything that you are. And then write yourself a letter from that person. And my letter always starts, dear Fiona, you're doing the best that you can. You're not perfect. You're a bit frightened because this is new. You've got a book out and it's very scary, for instance. You know, those kind of words. And you can locate this inner wise voice perhaps by thinking of somebody else or thinking of, I don't know, what would Helen Mirren say to you right now? It's a favorite one of mine. So applying a little bit of self-compassion. You can also do a little bit of centering like we just did, but this time around your heart. Notice your heart. And just soften around it or notice a part of your body that's kind of like tensing up with your imposter syndrome and soften a little bit around that with gentleness as if you were kind of holding a puppy, right? So bringing a bit of self-compassion in. And then the third thing is to choose. So you've got to notice it, accept it, and then choose. And that might involve you talking back to that inner critic or that imposter syndrome saying, I know you're trying to help me, but... I've got this. It's all right. And even if this doesn't go well, I can survive. I will learn. I will grow. I've got friends who can support me. I've done my preparation. Thanks for trying to keep me safe, but it's time for me to expand out of my comfort zone. You know, imposter syndrome often shows up when you're actually stepping out of your comfort zone. So that's one of the things that you can do. You can also create, and and this is all in the book as well, an inner ally who you can kind of call on, who will support you and give you that voice that you need. And it's a wonderful experience when you have that inner ally 
to actually ask yourself, what would they say right now? So you can choose this thing about coming off automatic and actually choosing what would be really useful. And the way that I always like to think about it is this. Don't try, don't set as a goal getting rid of your inner critic or imposter syndrome, right? But what you want to do is get it out of the driving seat. You wouldn't give your keys to your car to your kid, right? But imposter syndrome or your inner critic, your saboteur, if it gets in the driving seat of your life, it's like letting a little crazy child in there. So what you as the adult want to do is notice that that imposter syndrome or your inner critics in the driving seat and say, oh, ah, there you are. Right. This isn't right. Let's get you out and get me into the driving seat. Now, you, I can leave you by the roadside, but actually, why don't I keep you in the car? But if you want to sit on the back seat and you want to be quiet, then that's okay. Or perhaps, you know, we can, I can give you something else to do. And I think that that's a really nice thing to do in a way because it gives you a more realistic goal. Like I suffer from anxiety and the inner critic. Like I, like many coaches, I do the work that I need. I've never been able to get rid of it. And I would be lying if I said that that would be a reasonable goal. But I also recognize that it's part of myself. So can I befriend it? Can I manage it so it doesn't rule, rule my life? Because if I reject it, I push it away. I'm just rejecting a part of myself, right? The part that isn't pretty and perfect and the part that's a bit messy. And I think being able to bring all of us into kind of wholeness and compassion with all of ourselves actually takes the um, the sharpness out of it as well. And that moment of noticing, accepting and putting yourself in the driving seat really is that moment of self-leadership. You know, how amazing it would be, what a difference it would make in your life to put yourself in the driving seat put your own hands on the wheel of your life and then steer it wherever you want it to go. So that really, in a nutshell, is what self-leadership is about. And it's the same process, whether it's imposter syndrome or inner critics, and it's proven to help so much more. And when you do that, when clients come to me and they say, I'm suffering from imposter syndrome, when they do this work, they suddenly start to begin to realize that moment of how much bigger than they are, how much more there's going on and how much they can be in right relationship with themselves. That's really key. Mm. I feel very reassured. I feel very reassured listening to you talking about this. And um, yeah, I think it's it's so true. Often clients will say to me, I just want to get rid of that, you know, inner critic. I just want to, you know, not, not have those thoughts. But actually, I think it, as you're saying, it's much more about redirecting that part of yourself or changing your relationship with it or not letting it take over rather than completely getting rid of it completely. Because I think even the most confident people still have an inner critic. I think it's just how Absolutely. we're wired as humans. So I, I, I think it is. And I, I think that whole thing of self-rejection is massive. You know, rejecting any part of yourself is massive. And also if you befriend it, you know what? Sometimes they, they've got a useful message for you. You know, but because they were formed at a time when you were a child, they're going to scream like a child. You know what a child's like when it tries to get your attention? It doesn't come up and say, well, I know that you're really busy, but I'd really like your attention now to try, you know, instead of which it screams, you're going to fail, you're going to fail, everyone will laugh at you, everyone thinks you're an idiot to get your attention. So turn your attention, but turn it as an adult and say, okay, I'm listening. 
anything you useful you want to say? And it might be, we can't wing this. You need to do a bit of preparation. Or, you know what, I feel a bit isolated. I need someone to talk to and run through what I'm planning to do so I can get a little bit of feedback. That might be quite useful, right? So please don't anyone reject themselves or think that because they can't get rid of this, that somehow they're failing. It's what I call the double down, right? We notice that we've got an inner critic or a, you know, a saboteur, and then we double down and give ourselves a hard time for having that, right? And it's really not necessary and it doesn't help you, which is why the self-compassion bit is so key. Everybody has a part of this as well. Everybody, everyone that I work with, myself. I love the fact that you're also really standing up and, and naming this because I think it helps very much. You are not alone. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Ah, oh, um, I've got time for one more question for you. Should we, <laughs> should we all contemplate our own death? <laughs> I know you talk about this in the book. Um, yeah. Is this something that is interesting? I had a earlier today. I interviewed somebody um, who's written a lot about grief and how that can change us and how how we can learn to live with that. I suppose this is sort of a little bit in that vein about how perhaps thinking about these things could be beneficial. Is that something that that you would recommend? Can you can you share what you what you were talking about when you mentioned that in the book? Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. And I, 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 love the, I love the fact that you're talking with someone about grief work, because I think that's one of the most profound works that we need to do. And we've got really bad at doing it in our culture. So thank you for doing that. Should we contemplate death? Well, here's, I have a, um, one of my teachers is a, a Buddhist called uh, Maitrabandu. And he described to us in a class one day, he said, you know, as humans, we're in an extraordinary situation. We know that we're going to die. Quite unusual amongst the animal world um, that we think we know we're going to die. We don't want it to happen. We don't know when it's going to happen. So if you could want to, you know, that is the, the existential foundation of most of our anxiety, right? And there's a lot of Buddhist practice around contemplating your own death because you have to deal with the fear of it. And there's two ways that you deal with it. One is thinking about the process of it, which is also quite hidden from us. That's one aspect. The other is thinking about the thing itself, right? So we can, um, our not being, and I, for, forgive me if, if there are people who have different religious beliefs and spiritual beliefs around this, but let's assume that this body dies for, for people who might think differently. Should we contemplate death? I think it is very useful. I think it is very useful to understand that one day we won't be here anymore. There's a visualization that I do with clients and it's in the book and it's quite a beautiful one. If you visualize that you are at a gathering and the gathering is for you at the end of your life, you're a very old person, you've had a rich life. And, um, you know, everyone on whose life you've had an impact has gathered around you. And one by one, they come to you and they thank you for the difference that you've made to their lives. And what are they thanking you for? The reason that I do that visualization with people is that understanding that we are going to die is the way that we can really, not just intellectually, but, but at a, a, a much deeper level, really understand 
the meaning of our lives, that our lives in some way do have meaning, what's important to us. Um, have you ever come across a writer called Bronnie Ware? Oh, yes. Bronnie yeah. wrote this wonderful blog. Yeah, the, she's a palliative care nurse who listened to the regrets of dying. And I think that there's a great deal of wisdom in there. So sometimes I ask people, you know, what do you think that you'd regret if you didn't do it? And trust me, you know, every day we live our lives as if the most important thing is emptying our inboxes. And at the end of our lives, our regrets won't be, damn, I wish I'd nailed the formatting or I wish I got the tech right for that thing. They will be, I'd lived, I wish I'd lived a life true to myself, authentic rather than the one people expected me to lead. I wish I'd allowed myself to be happier. I wish I'd kept in contact with people. So all of these reasons, if you like, all of these perspectives, shift the, the shift from perspective from the here and now to the understanding of, of the true nature of reality is can be terrifying but that's partly because of the culture that we have around it. But also it can be really energizing because it can give our lives meaning and purpose. And, and when I say that, I don't necessarily mean something lofty or grand. Sometimes people get scared of it. Well, who am I? I I'm not going to discover a cure for cancer. But it might just be my authentic gift. What people are thanking me for is kindness, support, love encouragement, inspiring people, you know, as well as helping more women get into leadership positions or overcoming great obstacles, being a great model, you know, a role model, whatever it might be as well. So I do think that that perspective can really help. If the actual fact of death is difficult, then imagine that gathering towards the end of your life when you're old. That's a nice shift of perspective to really get you aligned with what your gift is here, what your mission is here in this life as well, and, and how you're going to give your life meaning by aligning with that every day of your life, if possible. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. I hope people will, will do that and, and buy your book, of course. Where can people find out more about you and buy your book and anything else you're, you're offering? Well, the book is out on March, the 23rd of March, and it will be available, I believe, everywhere. Bookshops, Amazon, it's also internationally released as well. My website is fionabucklandcoaching.com, and there'll be updates there. There'll be giveaways from the book. I'm also going to be launching a course as well in alignment with this. It's going to be two parts. You can do one or the other or both. Um, one is going to be self-leadership, the leader within and then there's going to be the leader in the world as well. And he's going to be small coaching groups for, for going through the book, if you like, for doing some of the exercises led by me and in a, a group environment, which will be really lovely. I'm really looking forward to that as well. Um, I love doing that kind of work. On there as well, you're also going to find out about events that I'm doing. Um, all of the events obviously are online at the moment, but I'm doing stuff throughout the year with Guardian Masterclasses, especially on the Inner Critic. And there'll be more news that comes up as well. So check me out on there. I'm also on Instagram. I don't do a huge amount on Instagram, I'll be honest with you, but there will be some more stuff coming up. And I really enjoy it as a piece of creativity. So there's quite often lots of nice insights and things like that that I can put up as well, as well as seeing what other people are doing, which is always great. Yeah, brilliant. And the book is called Thoughtful The book leadership. is called Thoughtful Leadership. 
Um, and I, I loved, I'm just going to say that the, the subtitle as well, just because, you yes. know, I think it's quite nice, actually. A Guide to Leading with Mind, Body and Soul. Beautiful. Amazing. Thank you so much, Fiona, for everything you've shared. It's been brilliant. Oh, thank you so much for asking me. I'm, I'm really appreciative. As I said, it's just so nice to have someone like you doing the work that you do in a really supportive way. And I know that a lot of people really appreciate it. So thank you. You have been listening to the Karma You podcast with me, Chloe Brotheridge. Don't forget, you can download loads of freebies for anxiety and confidence at my website, karmayou.com. You can also find out about my app and my one-on-one sessions. Please do subscribe to this podcast in the Apple Podcast app. And if you have enjoyed it or found it helpful, please leave me a review. It makes a massive difference to helping the podcast get discovered by other people. And come on over and find me on Instagram. I'm hanging out there every day. You can find me at Chloe Brotheridge. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please do share it with anyone who might need to hear this today. So I'm sending you loads of love and I hope you have a brilliant week ahead. 